adjusting the fan. Maybe I should see the doctor. I don't know. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, this morning to Romans chapter 2. I mentioned in the Bible reading to be thoughtful with regard to what we'd consider in the sermon this morning. And I just hold that last hymn before you as well. I thought this morning of one of the lines from Newton, what will profession like this avail in that terrible day? Touching on the themes, Lord willing, that we will touch this morning here in Romans. Reading in chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1 and read down through the end of the 16th verse in this chapter. And we just again ask the Lord to prosper the public reading of His Word and let us give attention. Romans 2 and verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For that thou judgest, dost the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou should escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and the thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Well, amen. We'll end our reading and trust again the Lord's own blessing to be on the public reading of His inspired Word. And let's do bow our heads and our hearts together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, come into Your presence today and we are in many ways moved in two directions. Moved with a holy reverence and fear of a triune God who is holy, holy, holy. And yet, moved with overwhelming joy that You're just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Lord, give us help today, even in covering these verses in many ways with a very plain and simple argument and 
other ways with some turns of phrase that demand careful attention. So we ask for your help today as we consider your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, it has been slightly more than a month since we have been in our studies in Romans. With holidays intervening, some absences, my own absence in Northern Ireland. So it's fitting that we take a little bit of time today and review where we've been and where we're going as we come into this second chapter, or I should say continue on into the second chapter. We've reached a point in the epistle and in our studies where it's important for us to be reminded about the significance of context. There are a few phrases that we're going to consider, Lord willing, today that, like in all of Scripture, if taken out of their context, can certainly be twisted to mean something that entirely is opposite, really, of what they do mean in their context. And so it's vital that we keep our context in view as we consider the verses we've read together today. So if you look back at where we've gone and where we've been and where we're heading in Romans, there's an argument that the Apostle is setting before us that is eminently clear. He has put himself forward with such directness that we can almost say there's a thesis statement in this epistle that stands above the themes, if you will, of many of the other epistles. And that theme we see in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It's the Gospel. Let's read it again. He says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Whereas some would translate and put the order of the sentence there, the just by faith shall live. The theme of Romans is clearly, it is categorically justification by faith alone. The emphasis we've seen from faith to faith, it's from beginning to end, it's through and through. It's a gospel of salvation by faith. So it's, it's impossible to miss that theme. It's impossible to miss that truth. If you look at where we're heading, right after that announcement of his theme, Paul, before he comes into an explanation of justification by faith alone, this is the bulk of the book beginning in chapter 3 and verse 20, he enters into that first opening argument and he begins to show us our need of this type of righteousness. Our need of this type of justification. It's the only way that we can be made right with God again because we are now in a fallen condition. And so before he enters into the revelation of righteousness, he starts in chapter 1 and verse 18 dealing with the revelation of wrath. And we see the rest of chapter 1 that ends in that awful catalog of sin and wickedness and shows all the world is guilty before God. And so there's a sense in which this description of man's need of justifying righteousness, of man's inability to merit that righteousness in his own, because if you come down to the closing part in chapter 3 of this opening argument, the revelation of wrath, we have the clear, clear statement, verse, chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
there shall no flesh be justified. So there's no question about where Paul is headed. And the pieces of his argument that we're going to read here in chapter 2 have to be seen certainly in that light. There's a sense in which when Paul is finished with establishing man's guilt and in chapter 1, he's finished with that revelation of wrath. It's plain to see. We're condemned. We're guilty. This is a description of us and our sins. But as he's going to do in this book frequently, he anticipates an objection. He doesn't do it um, with such clarity as thou wilt then say, as he'll do later. But he speaks here of a man that is a potential objector. And so when he comes to chapter 2, verse 1, therefore he says, Thou art inexcusable, O man. Now he's going to be identified in verse 17 as a Jew. But before he makes that clarification or that specification, he just puts it out there as any man that would judge another. This potential objector is a man that looks at what he said in chapter 1. He's seen the catalog of ungodliness and sinfulness, and of course this describes the Gentile world. And he can perhaps say amen to that. I'm not among those who either do those things or take pleasure, sanction those that do them. I'm really tempted to pause. I'm amazed at the news stories that come to us in floods, it seems. But what we've been saying really for years, I was listening to a sermon last night on this portion of Scripture from over 20 years ago. Dr. Cairns was preaching on this portion, and he just talked about the perverse lifestyles that were being promoted and how this was really cascading. And I thought, wow, what has transpired in the 20 years since this sermon was preached is staggering and really makes those statements prophetic. But it's not enough for the ungodly in our age to just have their, their lifestyle permitted, as it were. It'd be celebrated. And those that refuse to sanction and celebrate are now marked as evil. Frightening indeed. And I think the way it's stated there at the end of Romans, they which commit such things not only do the same, but take pleasure in them that do. They sanction it. They openly encourage it. Paul, I say, in chapter 2, turns his attention to a man that says he doesn't fit that description. He doesn't sanction the ungodly lifestyle of Gentiles. He speaks against it. He can say amen to everything Paul said in that chapter. Yeah, those evil people are out there. And so what Paul's doing in chapter 2 is pausing to address this potential objector. This man who doesn't sanction and openly practice such things. And of course, the Jews that he'll name beginning in verse 17 so aptly fit that description. But again, you don't have to be Jewish to have the mindset, to have the attitude and the arguments 
that Paul is refuting here in chapter 2. So this potential objector who thinks, I'm different than those people. I have a, a different status than these people. I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's people. And so chapter 2 takes this potential objection in line. And it addresses the Jew, but I would suggest takes in a lot of modern Christians as well. Those that are nominal Christians. Those who would say amen to arguments against the downward spiral of our culture. They might go to a march or do whatever to protest some of the evils of our day. And yet themselves would still be lost. Themselves would still be as the Jews who think, I have a different status than the world. I'm among God's people. Might even use covenantal language. And yet, are still outside of Christ. Still have not come to God on gospel terms. Perhaps, though in lesser ways and without sanction, are guilty of the same crimes, guilty of the same sins. Isn't this what the Lord did in the Sermon on the Mount as He preached to Jews? As He preached to those who had so rewritten the Old Testament law as to justify themselves and condemn those outside. There's ceremonial justification in their view. There is being of the seed of Abraham that makes them gods in their view. There's some standing that they possess that those described in chapter 1 don't possess. It makes them somehow distinct. Somehow above this condemnation that they would say amen to. It's that mindset that the Apostle is really dismantling in the second chapter. He's meeting this potential objection. And as we've seen, this chapter introduces various standards of judgment. Read various commentaries, listened to several sermons, and it's interesting that though there's clear agreement on this being a statement of different standards of judgment, the, the listing... Uh, the number of standards uh, is different from commentary to commentary. An example of that, I've suggested to you five standards, and the first one being truth. And if you look in verse 2 of our reading, or excuse me, verse... Uh, yes, verse 2, sorry. But we are sure the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. There are other translations that don't put it that bluntly. Uh, they say something like, God's judgment against those that commit such things is right. And so it's not just a clearing uh, a, a banner statement out there. Here's a judgment according to truth. It's just God's judgment's right against those which commit such things. So even the, the delineation and numbers of these standards of judgment is, is not the point. The point is, Paul's just making an argument and repeating the argument from different directions throughout the opening half of chapter 2. This potential objector has got to understand that there's a spiritual reality underneath. And the Jews' perennial sin was ignoring those spiritual realities. The need of coming to God on God's terms. 
the need, as Christ pointed out to Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel that didn't know one simple thing. You must be born again. In many ways, that truth of John 3 is what Paul is unfolding in these multiplied statements of Romans 2. There's no respect of persons with God. Just because you're a Jew. Just because you're religious. Just because you know a little about the Bible and you have a Christian heritage doesn't mean you're a child of God. There's a spiritual reality underneath that you must experience. That is what Paul is arguing really in chapter 2. We've looked somewhat already at the standards of judgment. We spoke about God's judgment according to truth. We talked about His judgment according to righteousness. And now we come to this third statement, and this is the one we read in verse 6. We read here, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Judgment according to deeds. Now that's where we step back and say, now hang on. Isn't that a contradiction of justification by faith? Isn't justification by works a bad doctrine? Isn't that a Roman doctrine? Isn't that the self-righteous doctrine? Well, yes, of course it is. So what does it mean? We would have to accuse Paul of really not understanding his own argument, not making his own case, if he's really suggesting justification by works in this statement. But what he's doing here is making a statement. He's really actually quoting from the Old Testament here. You can see repeatedly in Scripture that God makes mention of judging men according to their deeds. I'll give you just a few of these in sample from both Old and New Testaments. Psalm 62 and verse 12. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. Potentially this text itself, what Paul is quoting here. Proverbs 12. She shall render to every man according to his works. Jeremiah 17 and verse 10. The Lord search the heart, I try the reins, even to give to every man according to his ways. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 13. The day shall declare it. It'll declare every man's work of what sort it is. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, that whole section on the judgment seat of Christ. Sober section for us as believers. But he speaks there about rendering to every man according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Galatians 6 and verse 7, very close language to Corinthians today about being not deceived. Whatsoever a man soweth, Paul says there, he shall also reap. And then when we read in the closing book of the canon, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 speaks of the books being opened. And those there at the judgment being judged according to their works. In the very closing chapter of Scripture, come quickly. The Lord says He will come quickly and His reward is with Him to give to every man according as His work shall be. Now we could take a long time, but in essence that's what we'll do when we come to chapter 3 and chapter 4, refuting 
a doctrine of justification by works. The Bible clearly teaches justification by faith alone. But the point Paul is making underneath here, the point he's holding before this self-righteous Jewish objector, is that there is a connection between justification and lifestyle, if you will. That's why I paused to get you to think through our reading in 1 Corinthians this morning. There's another catalog of wickedness and gross immoralities, much like we saw in Romans 1. And Paul says there very plainly, don't you know, those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews, where it speaks of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. It's not to say that men are justified by their works, but it is to say throughout the Scriptures the connection between changed lives and justified people is inseparable. And to put it in the way, in the language of Romans chapter 2 here, we speak there, beginning in verse 7, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Here's a direction of life. Here's a new understanding and perspective that causes those that are born again to borrow again from John 3, to seek something other than what the world seeks after. To live in such a way that is different than how the world lives. In that contrary distinction distinction in verse 8, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. The word translated in our authorized version, contentious, in other Translations is translated as self-centeredness. There's a different perspective. There's a different outlook on life. There's a different pursuit in life. And again, it's not to sanction, it's not to even suggest justification by works. What it is to suggest, and remember our context here, this objector, It's a guy that thinks, yeah, but that's the Gentiles. I'm not a Gentile. I'm a Jew. I'm God's people. His lineage, his religious profession, isn't what makes him a child of God. And he's going to underscore that in the last half of the chapter, Lord willing, that we'll see next week. You could put it in Old Testament language. What does Moses say in Deuteronomy 10? What do the prophets echo? Jeremiah 4 echoes the same thing. Circumcise yourselves to the heart. Even graphically says, take away the foreskin of your heart. These Jews that Moses is warning about in Deuteronomy 10, that Jeremiah is pointing the finger at in Jeremiah 4, are the very ones that are these potential objectors in Romans 2. They're resting on self. Which is kind of resting on justification by works. Or justification by ecclesiastical connections. Justification based upon being somebody that holds up a Bible. 
says they believe it. That's my people. That's my book. And they're unchanged. In many ways, here and even later in chapter 2, the Apostle is going to be assuming some things he's going to unfold in later chapters about the work of the Spirit, about the doctrine of regeneration, and the new birth, and the new life. But I say in this judgment according to deeds, all he is highlighting here is that God is going to judge based on spiritual reality and not on religious profession. He's not in any way sanctioning a doctrine so clearly contrary to the whole theme and thesis of his book. And the point is, spiritual reality, the new birth, looks like something. And we don't have time to pursue this. We may come to it a little bit later in the book. But in this judgment according to deeds, it is important for us, standing firmly, unashamedly, unapologetically, unmovably on the doctrine of justification by faith alone to recognize also what we do in this life matters. It matters for everything we've been describing thus far as a demonstration of who we are and who we're not. Those with circumcised hearts not just circumcised bodies. Those with changed lives, not just religious credentials. Those that are born again, and those that aren't. That's the spiritual reality that's underneath here. But if I could say again with regard to the works of believers, there's a whole doctrine that we see in the New Testament Scriptures, particularly with regard to rewards. Now, I believe that the gift of God and salvation for every believer is life. Life is by grace alone. Received through faith alone. But if we could put it in this way, there are going to be cups, as it were, in glory. And there won't be any despondent, discouraged, sad-hearted believers in the presence of God in eternity in heaven. The former things are passed away. Tears and sorrows are passed away. At His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In His presence, there's fullness of joy. Every cup will be full. But it may be there will be cups, if you will, of varying sizes. We speak of degrees of punishment. We may have cause to reference in a few moments what the Lord said to the cities of Galilee, Capernaum, Bethsaida. Woe unto them! The deeds that had been done in them had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh. They would have repented. It would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and for those cities of Galilee. That's an amazing thing for people in our generation who are crying out loud and clear against the 
sodomites and the perverse lifestyles of our age, that it will be more tolerable for some of these than for the enlightened. Some that have grown up in Bible-believing and Bible-preaching churches that are still lost. And I say just as there are obviously degrees of punishment with regard to the ungodly, degrees indeed perhaps of those that inherit glory and that joy in the presence of their Lord. So I say this argument about judgment according to deeds, it's not in any way pulling away giving some alternate path than justification by faith alone, which is the theme of this book. It is just put for this religious objector who thinks somehow he is immune from the condemnation of chapter 1 because of his credentials. No, God's judgment is according to truth. God is the righteous judge. There's a spiritual reality that's going to be exposed in that day. And mere profession, mere ecclesiastical connections won't cut it in the day of judgment. That is the argument Paul is making here. There is spiritual reality in view. The new birth looks like something. It is not merely religious reputation. There's something true of these people. There's that patient continuance in seeking. It is these that inherit eternal life. But I think verse 11 sums up this argument and really the thrust of this chapter. There's no respect of persons with God. There's no partiality with God. I can remember, even as a young teenager, perhaps even the preteen time frame, the broken chronometer, you know. But I remember wrestling in my own heart and wrestling with my own sin. With all I knew of the Bible, my good upbringing, a lot of memory verses pat down, imagining conversations, the arguments I could put forth with God based on who I was, where I'd been, what I knew my heritage was. Really. There's no respect of persons with God. In fact, those, as we'll see in a moment with greater light, have a higher level of accountability. God's judgments according to truth, that true judgment, is going to be according to. It's not based upon, but according to deeds. The deeds of those who are justified by faith alone. The deeds of those who are regenerated by the monergistic working of the Spirit of God, if we put it in our precise doctrinal language. Those who understand and are completely divorced from any merit in themselves. 
their deeds are going to reflect who they are. It's going to be, as Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you. And I think this is a vital truth in days where it's a casting off, really, of the thought of changed lives. I still, maybe I should say it publicly, and it will stir me up a little bit. Every year at the beginning of the year, I think this is the year I'm going to get this little book written. You know, the triangle story. Legalism and antinomianism. But here comes the title. Life-changing grace. The flesh, our religious flesh, always warps it. We want to preach change of life and no grace. Or we want to preach grace. and Change of life is irrelevant. Neither one is the Gospel. And Paul highlights this to this religious objector. That he's somehow different and distinct from those that are rightly condemned from chapter 1. Now God's judgment is according to reality. Spiritual reality. There's no respect of persons with God. But I want to come quickly to this fourth standard of judgment today. We've been dealing with these for, I guess this is the third message on these particulars. And this one, we can say, is according to light. And you might put in parenthesis there, according to law. Read with me beginning in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And then there's this parenthesis. If you leave that out and skip down to verse 16, read verse 12. They shall be judged by the law in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. Now that's where we'll come, Lord willing, next time to the remainder of the chapter. That last standard of judgment, the Gospel. Judgment according to the Gospel. But in this parenthesis, that's verses 13 to 15, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now again, he's not putting forth the possibility of sinners meriting life by doing the works of the law. But he's stating what's been stated back in the books of Moses, repeated in the prophets, repeated in the New Testament. It's the Lord's dealing with the rich young ruler. You know, how are you going to be saved? Well, keep the commandments. The doers of the law should be justified. Great. Oh, we're fallen and we're already lawbreakers. So, even though that's the standard, none of us can meet it. Well, that's the point. Paul's not here arguing we can meet the standard. He's just saying that's the standard. But then his point is here, judgment according to light Judgment according to law. Gentiles, as we said, verse 14, continue, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, the conscience also bearing witness, the thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. What's his point here? The Jews gloried in the fact that they had God's law. They'd received His Word. They had more light than the Gentiles had. He's going to highlight that in chapter 3 here shortly. But the Gentiles have a law. 
The Gentiles have light shining unto them. And there's a statement that he makes here that's remarkable, and commentators really wrestle with this. They show, verse 15, the work of the law written in their hearts. Now some of the unbelieving look at this and they start preaching up the noble heathen. You know, those that are out there that live up to the light they have, God's going to take them in. They don't need Christ. They don't need our Gospel. Dr. Cairns made a, I think, quite perceptive remark in exposing the folly of that mindset. If this noble heathen view of the liberal theologians is true, then the best thing Western Christians could ever have done was to never go anywhere as a missionary. Don't preach to them about Jesus. You're just upping their accountability level. Leave them where they are and let God take them in that way. I mentioned our brother Fletcher in a prayer request this morning. It's 20 plus years ago, my first trip out to Calgary. Well, maybe it wasn't my first because I was there preaching for him instead of a week of prayer. But he was taking me up into the Rockies to Banff, which is just a beautiful resort area. But he took me a back road, really the last miles of the plains uh, before you get into the mountains. There's a church that had been established by a missionary. I'm not positive. He may have been a Methodist missionary of more than a century ago. It's a little historic building. You can go in and see it and whatnot. But that denomination had been absorbed in modern times by what's called the United Church of Canada. It's one of the most liberal churches in the world. I can give some examples of their demonstrated liberalism, but I'll leave it off. But he told me as we stopped and looked at this church that that United Church of Canada had in recent times actually sent a formal letter of apology to the native Indian tribes of that area because one of their forebears had the audacity to come to them and tell them they needed something different than their own religion. So they apologized for one of their missionaries. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 2. The Gentiles don't have the law written on their hearts in the way that Jeremiah in the New Covenant speaks of the law written on our hearts as believers and ultimately in the day of glorification. That law written in our hearts is going to be changed hearts, glorified hearts and minds in which we delight fully in the law of God and we walk perfectly in the law of God. No, it's not that writing of the law in the hearts that Paul has in view here. It's the writing of the law in the heart that he's seen in chapter 1. That leaves men without excuse. It's that speaking conscience. That innate understanding that we're the creatures of a holy and just Creator and that His moral laws are what we're accountable to. That there is such a thing as right and wrong. It's this understanding that Paul highlights. And he says it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. He's going to highlight this and we're going to focus on it when we come to the opening part of chapter 3. 
It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew that had the Old Testament Scriptures, you had that heritage, or you're a Gentile that didn't have those Old Testament Scriptures. God's law is available to you. God's law is written on your heart. There's a conscience in you that speaks of right and wrong. Now that conscience, sadly, as part of the fall, can be bent. can ultimately be seared. Conscience has to conform to Scripture. The point is, as we see in chapter 1, that speaking conscience is there. It's when men continue to push it down, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they persist in that practice along and along and along that God gives them over to their desires. Ultimately gives them over to a reprobate mind. Where they don't discern anymore between good and evil. And that in itself is a judgment something we need to be mindful of in our generation. The stuff that's being piped to us, pumped into our children constantly, is the warped, seared conscience of those that are under the judgment of God. They have so suppressed His truth. They've so suppressed His law speaking in their hearts that God gives them over to that reprobate mind. But here, judgment according to light. Judgment according to law. The law written in the heart in Romans 2 is not the law written in the heart of the new covenant of Jeremiah 33. It shows the liberated man walking with his Creator in harmony and fellowship. It's the law as a condemning force. It's a law that exposes to Him His guilt, His need of a Redeemer, His need of a justification from somewhere else because He is unable to justify Himself. Here, as many as been sinned without law shall perish without law. I'll read there what we spoke of before. More tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom. They were without law. They didn't have the extra revelation that Abraham and Lot had. They were still guilty. They were still demonstrating the suppression of truth and the reprobate mind of Romans 1. But in the day of judgment, they're going to be judged as those without, can we read in here, the Bible. They just had the speaking voice of the law of God written in the heart as a conscience that showed them right and wrong, and they chose wrong anyway. But this objector who has the law, he's going to be judged according to the law that he has. That's why we're speaking here about judgment according to light. Here are those cities of Capernaum. The Lord said, 
It'll be more tolerable for Sodom in that day than for you. Because Sodom is going to be judged by the light they had. Condemned, yes. Cast out forever, yes. But here are you. Self-righteous Galilean cities with the Son of God Himself walking in your midst explaining the Gospel of the Kingdom. And you say, no thanks. Don't need that. Got what I need already. Go away. To be judged according to that light. And that's where I say it is a sober thing to consider not merely the cities of Galilee, but the cities of England, of Scotland, of America, where truth as it is in Jesus has been preached. The Scriptures are readily available. Multiple copies in every home. And perhaps with the same measure of religious profession and religious activity as the New Testament Jews Paul wrote to. They weren't like the Romans. They went to the synagogues on Saturday. They had the Bible read. They said amen. They sang the Psalms. But they didn't need the message of Jesus. What about people perhaps in this room? What about people such as I've seen my whole life in churches that hear and know have a knowledge of the facts of the Gospel? But they're unchanged. The real understanding of their need a real falling upon Christ, resting in His person and work by faith alone. The experience of the new birth hasn't been theirs. And thus, the deeds, the changed life that Paul highlights here, again, not so uncomfortably, but just in accordance with the realities of conversion. But that doesn't belong to many in such modern Christian circumstances. It's a fearful reality that God deals with spiritual realities. Not with heritage. Not with ecclesiastical connections. His judgment's according to truth. His judgment is according to righteousness. His judgment's according to deeds. His judgment's according to light, to law. As we'll see, Lord willing, next time. His judgment's according to Christ in the gospel. I trust the Lord will bless these thoughts today, looking at some of these harder phrases, perhaps, but yet when we see their context. Clear enough indeed. Spiritual reality, Paul puts before this potential objector. You can't just stand up and say, I checked those boxes. 
No, you must be born again. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful today that we have not only this second chapter of Romans, but the fullness of the story. And yet we see this truth throughout Your Word. We've seen it read today. We've seen it even in the hymns. What thank You of Christ? Is there spiritual reality? Or is there a profession such as these objectors in this chapter had? They didn't sanction certain things, but yet in their heart of hearts were guilty of the very things the Gentiles were guilty of. What will profession like this avail in that terrible day? Lord, stir us today to think about spiritual realities. Bless Your Word to us, one and all we ask. In Jesus' worthy name, Amen.